0: This is Salt and Spine.
1: And so you're asking a lot of somebody who's, who's reading a, a cookbook. So you're kind of engaging them, you know, head, heart, and hands, really. It's like this very different way of relating to a book than you are to an art book. And that's kind of why I love designing cookbooks, too, because there's a creative aspect to it, but there's also a very practical aspect to it, and you have to kind of keep that balance in mind whenever you're designing.
0: We knew that basically with the world in turmoil, that there was an opening for our perspective, and that we were prioritizing our perspective on this as Black men and as Black artists, that we knew how to make this book, and we didn't want anyone getting in the way of that.
2: Hi there, I'm Cleo Worster, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You're tuning in today for a special episode, the third episode in our four-part series, Behind the Spine. In this series, we've shifted focus away from the authors to hear from some of the other talented folks who work behind the scenes to create the beautiful cookbooks that we all love. You've already heard from the recipe testers and the photographers, and today we'll hear from the folks who bring that content together into one book, The Graphic Designers. You just heard from today's guests, cookbook designers Francis Baca and George McCalman. Today's episode, we'll start with a peek into the mind of cookbook designer Frances Baca. She'll teach us about typographic details that can set a book apart from the rest, how she begins a design project, and the characteristics that make cookbook design so special. Frances designed her first cookbook at just seven years old. Snacks, the homemade cookbook, featured a green construction paper cover with a yarn binding. Suffice it to say, Frances has always known that she wanted to design books, and not just cookbooks, though that's what we'll focus on today. She studied design at Rhode Island School of Design, where she learned to pay close attention to the minuscule details that can make a book so special. She talks about sticking up for her readers and the unique challenge of designing a cookbook, which she says ought to be a multi-sensory experience. Because cookbooks are also practical books that we use in our day-to-day lives, Frances stresses the importance in her work of everything from making the font large enough to read to ensuring that the spine lays flat on the countertop so you can easily cook from it. Frances tries to account for it all. After the break, you'll hear from the innovative graphic designer and artist George McCalman. He'll tell us about the unique hands-on approach that he took to designing Black Food by Bryant Terry, how graphic designers' role in society is much more important than you might think, and what it's like to bring a diverse range of voices together into a unified book. Let's head now to the virtual studio where Frances joined us from her home in Berkeley, California. Hi, Frances. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you, Clee. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So we'll just start with your personal background. How did you get started in design and in cookbook design specifically?
1: Well, I have always loved books and design. And from a very young age, I mean, like six, seven, eight years old, I knew that I wanted to be a designer. In fact, the first cookbook that I designed was called Snacks. And I was probably seven and it has a green construction paper cover and a yarn binding and a little drawing of fruit on the cover. My mother still has it. It's a very prized possession. So I I always loved design and I always loved making books and looking at books. When I went to college, I studied design. And when I graduated, I worked as a publication designer at um, a state university publications office for about a year. And so I really got to learn kind of the technical ins and outs of how to build documents and how to think about catalogs and pacing and that sort of thing. But I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to learn a little bit more about design and kind of look at more of the creative aspects of that. And so I decided to go to graduate school. And I enrolled at Rhode Island School of Design, and I got my MFA in graphic design there. And that was a really, really formative experience for me because I was exposed to so many wonderful people, my professors, visitors who came to um, RISD, RISD. Definitely lots of book designers that I hadn't heard of before um, and it was very very inspiring to me and it's super challenging also But I really got involved in artist books and my body of work was based on bookmaking, And so that was something that I really just fell in love with and of course typography And when I left I knew that I wanted to continue making books And so I came to San Francisco and started freelancing with publishers here In fact the first book I did was a photography book with Chronicle Books called Chavez Ravine and uh, just kind of blossomed from there. Yeah.
2: It sounds like you have a lot of experience also doing art books. I'm wondering what you feel like the differences between when you're designing a cookbook and an art book, because cookbooks have also become these really visual objects. And there's so much more of a focus on the graphic design.
1: I design a lot of different types of books. I do art books. I do craft books. I just did a a kid's book actually about photography and photography, which was really fun. But my true love really is cookbooks. And that's kind of the the bulk of the books that I do. Cookbooks are so unique because they are this perfect combination between like personal narrative, but they're also very functional and that you're trying to achieve a goal, right? You're trying to make Mm -hmm. something, you're trying to feed. Or do whatever you do. And so you have to, as a designer, think about how you engage people on many different levels. It's a very multi-sensory experience if you're looking at a cookbook, right? It's an art book, you're taking it in, you're getting inspired, but you're not actually taking and doing anything with it necessarily. A cookbook, you're getting inspired, you're kind of hearing the author's story, especially if it's something very personal. But you also have to be thinking about the technical aspect of this. Okay, now I have to like think about ingredients that I have to buy and things that I have to prep and I have to get my mise en place set up and, you know, all of these things that you have to do. And then you have to kind of get into the actual process of making it and you have to, have to invest that time. And so you're asking a lot of somebody who's, who's reading a, a cookbook. Right. Uh, so you're kind of engaging them um you know head heart and hands really it's like this very different way of relating to a book than you are to an art book and that's kind of why I love designing cookbooks too because there's a creative aspect to it but there's also a very practical aspect to it and you have to kind of keep that balance in mind whenever you're designing
2: yeah I'm wondering if you can talk about what your role is as a designer how you see yourself in relation to a project
1: we're storytellers as well. We're visual storytellers. So we take the the content, the text that we have, we take the pictures and we weave together a story that enhances and brings deeper meaning to what it is that the author's doing. So mm-hmm. in my role as more of an architect, really, it's like I'm, I have these materials and I'm building this and I'm creating this experience for somebody. It's not just about taking the information in, it's really about helping them feel the content. You know, I think that that's really when you're doing your job right, you're, that's what you're doing. If you think about, you know, for example, a builder, if they're going to build a concert hall, is probably going to build it in a circle and have comfy seats and a nice high stage and speakers, and you're going to get in there, you're going to hear the music.
2: Mm-hmm. But a
1: really talented architect, like a Rem Coolhouse is going to build Casa de Musica, and it's going to be stunning, and you're going to walk in, and you're going to be completely mm-hmm. engrossed in the experience of listening to the music. It's completely different. So I think that, mm-hmm. yes, imparting information, but you're also adding a whole other layer of experience to someone when they're coming into a book. So, Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think you can feel that when you pick up a well-designed book, that there's something else going on there creating the context of the information. Is that usually how the process looks for you as a designer? You get the text and you get the photos and you have an idea of what will come out of it and you're piecing that information together? Or have there been projects where you're involved at sort of an earlier stage before all the assets are kind of gathered together? Oh,
1: yes, yes. So I've been involved at all all different stages. Sometimes I've come in when everything's already done and I'm just piecing it together. Sometimes I'm involved in the brainstorming process and helping kind of conceptualized look and feel and hiring photographers. And so I've I've come in at all different stages. Mm-hmm. I really love being involved from the very beginning because that way you really have a voice in the process and you can help kind of usher it along. But I wouldn't say that my level of investment is any different. I mean, I, I, I'm really mm-hmm. invested in the pro- project, you know, in in, in either way. Um, but I really do love kind of having it, having a say and being involved in like the art in particular. It's really fun to be working with photographers and illustrators. I love doing shoots.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a part of the process.
2: Project. What's sort of your first step as a designer? Where do you begin? Do you start by, you know, brainstorming with the author or the other creatives on the project? Do you kind of sit down and try to imagine what the book might look like. What does that first step look like for you?
1: Well, because the types of books that I work on are all so different. My first love is cookbooks, but I work on lots of other different types of books. And so the needs vary from, from book to book, from publisher to publisher, and, and of course, depending upon who the audience for the book is. But um, if I were to speak to a cookbook project, the first thing I want to do is make a a strong connection with the editor and with the author and get a really good understanding of what the vision for the book is and what the goals are for the publisher. Like what is the experience that the reader needs to have? What does the author want their reader to take away from this? What is the story that the author is trying to tell? That's going to really guide kind of the creative process for me, but also I'm going to talk to sales and marketing and I'm going to figure out like what are the marketing goals for this? Like what does the competitive landscape look like? who else is doing what we're trying to do because we're going to want to look at those books too. And there's lots of ways that you can gather information about competition and read like, what is the people like about those books? What is it that they don't like about those books or what's missing? Because that's going to be where you can kind of come in and make a stronger book and try and differentiate Mm -hmm. yourself. So it's always important to think about the book relative to the competition. And so that's something that I pay a lot of attention to Um, in particular with trade book clients, Um, Not so much with my university press clients that often do cookbooks because they're more focused on the authority of the author than they are really about selling, you know, a million copies of the book. But that kind of helps ground my thinking. And then I'll go in and start brainstorming ideas. And what I often do, and which is a really fun process, is that I'll set up a Google deck and start dropping in pictures and links to things and share that with the author and the editor and they can comment and they can drop in things that they like. And so we start to put together kind of like a collective vision of what the book can look like. And um, that really helps me kind of hone in on where do we want to land with this? And then as soon as I have that collected, I just dive in and start looking at type and looking at grids, looking at um, art, If the art's already done, then I look at that and figure out how do I want to pace it? What's the story that I'm trying to tell with the visuals? Um, If the art is not done and I'm responsible for hiring photographers or illustrators, which, by the way, is one of my favorite parts of the process is working with artists. um, I'm going to start looking at uh, artist portfolios and trying to figure out stylistically who do we want to work with setting up creative briefs, setting up shoots, and getting started on that process, which is a very lengthy, complex process, and is super satisfying and fun to do, really, really fun to do. And in fact, um, you know, looking at, I I just feel so um, fortunate to be able to work with some really talented photographers and illustrators, because to see them kind of put work together always amazes me. Because even though I'm a designer, I, I I don't know, you can't draw very well. And like, I, I just have such admiration for people that can just kind of pull that together really quickly. And so to watch their process is really wonderful and satisfying. And, and one of the moments that I love most about working on cookbooks is dropping in the art. When the art's done and you start uh-huh. dropping in those photos, those illustrations, it's like the pages kind of come alive and that's when you know everything starts to come together. So that's, that's a super fun part of the process. Uh, and then you just dive yeah. into laying everything out through rounds of corrections and comments from author and, and editor until you're ready to go to press. If you're lucky, you can go on press and see things at the printers mm-hmm. and just make sure the colors are looking right and the paper's looking right. Um, through the pandemic, that wasn't really possible. Yeah. And so most of that was really via PDFs. And that's not quite as satisfying a process. But you know, we got good outcomes there too. So
2: that's kind of in a nutshell what uh,
1: what a QuickBook process looks like for me.
2: Yeah you described kind of like the moment when you're dropping in the photos. Is it usually, do you design a spread with the photos in mind? Do you know what photo is going to go into it? Or is it ever the case that sort of those two things happen in collaboration with each other, where you're kind of like setting up the photo in collaboration with setting up the page?
1: It's um, it's both. Sometimes, you know, if you're mm. shooting a recipe, obviously you have to have a very specific photo go with a recipe. And so I'll I'll always have a photographer do a few different angles, maybe with different types of props, just so that we have enough variety. And so that when you're flipping through, you're not seeing the same prop in the same chapter, or, or, you know, you just want to have enough spreading the photos out enough so that you don't have repetition between those types of things. But I'll often have photographers shoot what we call pickups. And that is just let the, uh, the photographer be creative and arrange something on a tabletop and take photos of those things. And so those are often really fun and you can take them and drop them into places where you need a little extra color or you want to just have a little bit more texture um, to the pages. So sometimes I have a very specific vision for what I want to do. Like there's an opener and I want to have a table with, you know, shot from above with a plate and I want to have specific things there and the photographer will, will do that. But I also like to let, the photographer do their thing and say, well, here's what what we want to do, shoot that, but shoot whatever else you think might work. And that's often surprising and really fun. And and I'll Mm -hmm. be like, that's brilliant. I didn't think about that. Let's do that instead. You know? So that's again, a fun part of the process.
2: Are there any challenges that you run into when you're working on the type of project where you are given all of the assets and you come in at the end to kind of piece it together? Like what sorts of constraints are you working with there?
1: Well, when the art is already done, um, it's mostly constraints around timing, you know, and and budgets and sometimes reconciling different voices that have different opinions about how something should look. Sometimes the author wants one thing one way and the editors want it a different way and I might have a different opinion. And so you really have to be a good listener and be really collaborative and just keep in mind, like, the, the author's vision, but also, like what are the publisher's goals for this book? Because obviously it's got to sell. And so we have to think about what the, what those demands look like and what the market looks like. Um, that can be kind of the, the biggest challenge, really.
2: So it sounds like you end up sort of, in some cases, mediating between the author and the publisher or... Um, Sometimes, with- not so much between the author and the
1: publisher, because uh, frequently that's more where the editor is involved. But oh. um, you, you can be definitely caught in between that especially if uh, I'm working as a creative director where I have a designer who's working with me and then we've hired a photographer and we've hired an illustrator and everybody's got their opinion about it and um, sometimes the creative direction wants to kind of go in one way but the practical considerations need to be pulled in the other way so my job is to kind of make sure that that the creative team can do what they're good at can leverage their strengths, can have fun creatively, but also keep in mind that we've got a budget that we have to mind, or we have a deadline that we have to to meet, or we have certain constraints in terms of the market or the audience that we have to keep in mind. And so that, you know, it's a very fine line between, you know, having that creativity and that fun, but also keeping Mm -hmm.
2: it practical
1: and, and in line with what the publisher needs to achieve for the book.
2: It sounds like you have to do a lot of different collaboration with your teams, with publishers, with editors. And then also, you know, you're bringing disparate information together. I'm wondering what kind of skills do you think serve you well as a designer and as this creative director who's bringing those voices into one space?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, book design is such a unique practice within the design field because it's a combination of creative expression, which is sort mm-hmm. of inherent in the kind of design that you're doing. But it's also really firmly rooted in systems thinking like book design is a balance between constant and variable and bringing people in and having certain things that are constants within the design that help ground the person's experience and then variables that keep people's interest to keep them engaged as you're leafing through page by page. And so you always have to be thinking about that system and those kind of practical considerations. I am very pragmatic and, you know, I run a business, so I'm thinking about business and things like that, but also am, um, creative and so i have that balance between like it's got to get done it's got to be on budget but it's got to be beautiful it's got to really express the vision of the author and that sort of thing and so that that kind of orientation that i have i think suits me well in working in books and in being in a mm-hmm. role where i'm direct teams because I can hold the bigger picture in mind while making sure that all the details get done and making sure that we're creating that right balance, again, between making it beautiful and making it really resonate with our reader, but also making sure that we're not blowing the budget, that we're getting it in on time, that um, that it's properly positioned within the market, right? Part of my mm-hmm. role is to understand not only what we're trying to achieve with this particular book, but what are other people doing? What else is out mm-hmm. there? Because we have to be able stand out and be differentiated from what what else exists there in the market. And so that's another thing that we have to be thinking about in the whole process.
2: As a designer, you can always be tweaking things to make it just a little bit better or to be like finalizing that little finishing touch. I'm wondering, you know, balancing all those constraints of budget timeline, like just the reality check of trying to publish a cookbook. How do you know when to sort of like Step away from a project and say, you know, this is where I leave this. This is finished yeah. and ready to go out. It's when the calendar hits me. Gotta <laughs> <It's laughs> get there. Okay. Um, okay.
1: Yeah, I'm doing this for a really long time. So I know how long things take me to do. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm, I pride myself on hitting my deadlines. And so I, I tend to be pretty good about that. And I think I've, I've learned over the years also what I can let go of, what really mm-hmm. isn't matter in the grand scheme of things or what really isn't going to bring much value to the reader or to the publisher versus the things that really are important. Those things I will always fight for and advocate for. I tend to be very precise when I'm working and there are lots of things that I uh, check off my list as I work through a design. But the the one thing that I've learned to really um, surrender over time is getting really obsessive about typographic details, tiny typographic details. There are things that are really important to keep in mind when you're typesetting a page and that are um, kind of non-negotiables for me. Things like uh, making sure that your line breaks are really clean. Um, Making sure that you don't have hyphens that are stacking at ends of lines or words that are repeating. Um, Making sure you have good letting, which is the space between the lines, making sure that you've got legible type. Um, But Tiny things like spaces between words or spaces between letters, um, adjusting that is called kerning and it's good typographic form to kern things when you're typesetting them. But when you have, you know, a hundred recipe titles or a hundred heads, you're not going to do that. There just isn't time for that. And so that's something that I've learned to kind of let go of over time. If I'm typesetting a book cover, I certainly will go in and adjust all the tiny little details there because they're far fewer words, but um, for a book, it just isn't practical. And so I've learned to kind of let go of that. And um, InDesign, which is a program that most um, designers use to lay out books, um, has gotten much better over time in terms of doing automatic adjustments for those types of things. And so fortunately, it's not as much of a problem as it used to be. Um, Another thing I've learned to kind of let go of is um, something called uh, ligatures, which is like um, two characters that are combined, like an F and an I. If you don't use the ligature, oftentimes the dot in the I will crash into the dot in the F, and it just creates this sort of unpleasing looking set of of characters. And so um, some typefaces will have built-in ligatures that you can use. Um, That's a very nitpicky type detail. Some, like I say, are are built in. You don't have to worry about it, but some you do have to to kind of manually put in there, and that could just take a, a long, long time. And so I've learned to kind of release that over time. But that said, if I do have time and I'm designing the book, I will go in and kind of do some of those really tiny, tiny details.
2: You mentioned the things that you'll always fight for when you're designing a cookbook. I'm wondering what those things are that you think are the most important that really will make the difference for a reader. Well,
1: really great art, because I think that art really pulls people in. And with mm-hmm. how sophisticated cookbook design is now, I think readers tend to expect. Some you know some photographs in there. Some illustrations in there. Um, you know, people love to see a picture for every recipe. If you can do that, if you have a budget for that, you know, do that. Um, I think print quality is another thing too. You want to make sure you have good paper. And as I was just talking about binding, making sure that you've got a good binding that is practical, so people can actually cook from it when they're in their kitchens. Um, I think those are the most important things that I'll definitely fight for. Yeah.
2: Are there any books that you'd like to see made in the future, books that you haven't seen yet or changes in design that you would look forward to? You know, cookbooks, um,
1: it's such a vibrant, really broad category. There's just so much out there. Um, You know, fortunate for us who love cookbooks and and for designers who, who get to make them. So it's hard for me to pinpoint like Mm -hmm. a particular type of book that I think that should be made. I think that if you're looking for something, you're more than likely going to be able to find it out there. Um, And sometimes you don't know that you're looking for it and you find it and you're delighted and you, you, you want to have it, which is always kind of um, a wonderful thing to happen. Something that might be good to consider, especially for designers is accessibility for readers and, um, you know This doesn't exactly answer your question, but it, it's related to that in that, um, as I mentioned before, as a designer, your responsibility is really to be kind to the reader. Like You really have to think about how they're experiencing this book. You need to kind of guide them into the book. You need to help them navigate through the book. And um, the book serves a very practical function. They have to be able to cook from it, too. So it has to be laid out in a way that they can access that information quickly and be able to use it in the kitchen. Um, And if you're really doing your job well, then you're going to be weaving emotion into that for them. You're going to be piquing their curiosity. You're going to be able to surprise them or delight them, um, hopefully, as you're working. Um, But if you've missed that ability to to give them a good access point, you're going to completely miss bringing them in on the emotional level. Um, So I always try to think about with color combinations that are going to be easy for people to read type that's going to be large enough for people to read. Um, Sometimes that can get overlooked when somebody gets a little carried away with something that looks cool or is, um, you know, just really creative and fun. And there's, there's always room for that too, but I always try to balance that against what the reader needs. Mm -hmm. And a a really wonderful example of this um, is a cookbook that I saw several months back that was produced by a company called Maggi. Um, I think it's a European product company that makes soups and seasonings, but they partnered with uh, uh, an organization for the blind in Brazil to produce a cookbook for people who have uh, vision impairment. And it's the most spectacular Mm -hmm. book. Um, It has Braille in it, as you would imagine, but it also has, um, for those who are not technically completely blind and can see it does have certain accommodations for them like really large type and they use yellow and black um this is a very high contrast color combination that's why you often see like construction signs in yellow and black and police tape and those sort of things and so they use yellow and black and they have this really magnificent feature where they have um plastic molded impressions of what the plate looks like so if you're blind you can actually run your hand over it and get a a sense of what the plate's supposed to look like um which I, i think it's really astounding and they have a section where um you can pull back it's like scratch and sniff almost where you can peel back and you can smell what an herb should smell like and so they're engaging your sense of smell as well and in the very back they have a section with um Utensils that they made, like a protector for your finger, so that when you are cutting, you don't cut your finger, or a, a thermometer that will read out loud the, the temperature of what it, what it is that you are cooking. And to watch the, the look of joy on the people's faces when they're handed this book is just really amazing. And so, I think um, accessibility that's that's a wonderful example of accessibility it should be something that we think about. And if there are any publishers out there that want to do a book like that, call me because I would definitely like love, love, love to work on a project like that.
2: I'm Clea Worster, Salt and Spine producer. You can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine, where you'll find the chance to win copies of featured cookbooks as well as recipes from the books. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nozrat and Carla Hall, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. If you're a new listener, check out our catalog of more than 100 interviews with cookbook authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. And we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. The best way to support our work here at Salt and Spine is by subscribing to our Patreon page. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Subscribers receive early access to events, opportunities to win signed cookbooks, and bonus content. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at www.patreon.com slash saltandspine. We're back with our next guest today, the San Francisco-based artist and graphic designer, George McCalman. His work spans many different industries, but he focuses mostly on clients in food media and the art world. He opened the doors to his own design studio, McCalman Co., in 2011, where he works on branding for clients and does projects like cookbook design. Prior to starting his own business, he worked for award-winning magazines, including Ready Made, Mother Jones, and Entertainment Weekly. Today, we'll zoom in on his design process for Black Food, the first publication for Bryant-Terry's imprint, Four Color Books. George talks to us about flipping the traditional design model upside down, facilitating collaboration between all the folks on the creative team, and how he sees himself as a graphic designer, as a steward of information. Let's join George in the virtual studio where we'll talk cookbooks. Hello, George. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: So I guess I want to start with some questions about you as an artist and creator. I know you wear a lot of different hats. You're an illustrator. You're a creative director. You do the SF Chronicle work. How would you describe yourself or your work? What do you like to call yourself?
0: Well, that has evolved over time, and I have figured out a way of merging the various things I do into one sentence because it very easily can not be one sentence. So I feel like, you know, the titles of creative director and artist are also an embodied collection of words for me. And, and those two together, you know, me just saying I'm an artist doesn't take into effect that I'm a designer, that I'm a graphic designer, that I design things for myself and other people. And just being a creative director alone doesn't give clarity to the fact that I, I make things. I make things just based on my artistic interests. And so the two together, fused together, give, generally can give people a sense of the range of the work that I do.
2: Very well said. <laughs> I feel like you have a lot of practice describing your work.
0: I've, I've, had, I've had to get, because there were a number of years that I was fumbling and (laughs) over explaining and, and just kind of like, you know, when you can hear it in someone's voice when they're not clear who they are and you can hear the kind of, you know, insecurity or uncertainty. And so I've listened to myself fumble for years before getting clear and concise.
2: So your collaboration and work on black food, how did that start? Where did that project begin for you?
0: Um, where it started was a couple of meetings with Bryant. I knew Bryant socially, a mutual friend of ours had introduced us a number of years ago and we knew and respected each other and, and kind of saw, we both knew that we were very ambitious, you know, and in, in terms of the scope of what we, we do, like Bryant is a lot of different things and has really brought it, he's an activist, he is an orator He's um, a historian, he's a chef, and has really kind of combined so many of a kind of very modern sensibility with the history of Black cuisine, and has studied it in such a way and, and speaks so powerfully about the power of Black food. And we just knew each other socially. And then a couple of years ago, we ended up meeting He he did. He called a meeting of intention between us. And we sat in the San Francisco Museum of uh, Modern Art and really kind of declared to each other that we wanted to work on something really important and big together. We didn't know what it was, but he was like, you want to be my partner in whatever that is. And I was like, absolutely, yes. And then a couple of years later, he called me. He called me the summer of 2020, just right in the middle of pandemic, George Floyd's uh, murder. And he was like, I have it. I have it. And it's really important for right now. And I want you to help me steward this thing. I I want it to be different. I want the process to be different. I want the book to be different. And your sensibility is what I need to move this in that direction. He was talking about it and he was kind of like backing into the conversation. And I was like, wait, are you asking me to design this book? He was telling me about this. And and we were talking for about five minutes. And I was like, wait, oh, you're talking to me. You're like, <laughs> you're asking me to design this thing. And he said, yeah, are you, are you interested? And I was like, man, are you kidding me? I, <laughs> you had me at yes from the first sentence. I said, let us, let us do this.
2: Is it common for you as a designer to come on so early in a project to really be a steward, like you said, of, of a work?
0: Well, you know, there is my process and then there is the book publishing business. And Mm -hmm. those things are very different. And so what I, in Brian contacting me, he knew that I already knew the process that I wanted to do for this book. And Mm -hmm. that it was different than how uh, the book publishing process works. And he basically was like, I want to do this your way. I don't want to do it their way. Um, Mm -hmm. And because you're going to bring the cultural um, essence of what we're doing into the process. And so we're going to have to shift the process around to make sure that the cultural decisions we're making are as important as the production. Mm -hmm. And it's like, basically, I don't want to have to translate this book to white people for the entirety of the making of it. And you are going to know what that is. And so between the two of us, we can kind of erect a little force field of protection <laughs> around around this. Um, and we knew that basically with the world in turmoil, that there was a, an opening for our perspective and that we were prioritizing our perspective on this as Black men and as Black artists, that we knew how to make this book. And we didn't want anyone getting in the way of that. We wanted to know that the publisher we were working with was partnering with us, but wasn't overseeing the process. Like he handed the process to me. He said, I want you to oversee this. And so I, I knew I knew what he was step, asking me to step into. And I was really excited about it.
2: Yeah. What did erecting that force field around the project and creating that space for it really to become what you guys wanted it to become? What did that look like for you? What types of things did you do to make that possible?
0: A lot of communication, a lot of care. You know, we had a mostly Black team put this book together. And the first thing we did was put the team together, the Black photographer, the Black stylist, We just wanted to make sure that the team that we had, you know, this, we had a beautiful rhythm with each other and we got clear with each other about what we were doing. And so one of the things that I instituted was production calls where we were talking weekly months before we started designing the book months before we started photographing the book and You know, so we were really a beautiful, we were a beautiful band by the time we got to the actual making, like we spent a lot of months talking theoretically, organizing, setting up, making lists, but also getting into the ephemeral aspects of the book. And it was important for me to translate my process to the whole team. I I love explaining to people what I do and, and demystifying the design process because it can be intimidating when you don't know it. And I, I love doing it. I've, I've been, you know, a professional designer for close to 30 years now. And I, I know the inner workings of the process and I love explaining the process to people. And so Kind of bringing people along and letting them know what's going to happen next, why we made the decisions that we did. You know, there were certain things that counted on everyone's involvement and in terms of opinions and so on. And there were other times I just had to make the decision. And I was like, I'm totally comfortable in both realms. You know, there were some times that someone made a suggestion. And I was like, no, we're not doing that. and And here's why.
2: So your process as a designer, where do you start for this project? It seems like you started with a lot of communication, but like you specifically with your work, what, where does it start for you?
0: For me, it always starts with the joint twin poles of philosophy and emotion. I always, I want to understand what it is I'm doing, why I'm doing it. Like, you know, what is the context? Of this, And in the case of black food, we were basically course correcting a lot of things that a book like this didn't really exist, that it hadn't been made in this way before, that it was basically black people telling black stories, working with a white publisher, but basically, you know, prioritizing our perspective and being clear that that was the North Star of this book that we were we're telling the story of the Black diaspora, which we are as a a culture and a community, that we have, you know, food, I think, tells history more accurately than history books do, because where food migrated from and to tells you what actually happened in, in in a certain place. It tells you the actual history of people. And... You know, the idea of telling the story of Black migration through food is a really obvious thing. And I know other people have done it before, but Bryant wanted to do it from a really contemporary perspective. He didn't want it to feel weighed down in just prose. He wanted the book to feel vital and vibrant. And he's also, you know, Bryant is a child of poetry and hip hop. And so he wanted it to be sexy. He wanted it to speak to the the contemporary part of black people defining a lot of American culture. That, you know, you look at the, the most important, who are the most important actors, the, the people doing music, that you know, films. Right now it is the black community that is that is really kind of defining and redefining. Like we're at the beginning of all of these trends that then fan out and become part of the everyday fabric. But we drive a lot of culture in this country and we are 12% of the population. And what he wanted to do was basically take that value, like bring it real close to all of us, have us look at it, disseminate it, package it, write it, photograph it, and then send it out as a gift to the world. It's like, this is what we do. This is what we have done. And this is what we do.
2: I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it looked like for you to make something speak the way that the book does, to make something so vibrant and vivid, like you talked about. I mean, how did you go about doing that? What did, as a designer, what type of constraints were you considering? What What's guided your process in in bringing it all together?
0: Um, You know, as... I have matured as a designer. I spend a lot more time observing and listening. You know, the conversations with Bryant, I worked with a lot of people, but the person I listened Mm -hmm. to more than anyone else was Bryant. Not because he was the originator of the idea, um, but because he embodied the idea. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that And it's controversial for me to say this, but I have believed it and I I believed it then and I believe it now. There are a lot of really kind of big food, black food people right now, and they're all fantastic. I know a lot of them personally, but I don't know anyone else who would have been able to do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he, the trick that Brian did was basically bringing in the uh, established Titans of Black food um, storytelling, along with the New Guard. Mm -hmm. And he basically had the trust of the Jessica B. Harrises and the Michael Twitties, and then he brought in the Isaiah's and the uh, Tuna Turners and the, you know, and he also is a contemporary Black man, so he's bringing in the queer voices. He's not Mm -hmm. sitting with only the church as a model for talking about uh, contemporary Black culture, that he's bringing all of it in. And mm-hmm. I just love that he was fearless in that. He he wasn't, he was like, oh, I'm going to have a queer chapter in. And he was really excited about what that was going to reveal yeah. about Black culture. At no point was he like, oh, I don't know. I know that people are not going to, you know, some church-going Black folk are going to be upset about this. <laughs> um, and he didn't care he was just kind of like, they'll have to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Where culture is a really important part of the cultural gift that black people give to Mm -hmm. uh, American culture. And so that's alongside the church, you know, that's alongside um, hip hop. That's alongside sports. That's alongside science. That's alongside all of the beautiful things that we do culturally that we give um mm-hmm. to the larger society,
2: you just talked about the diversity of voices that came into the making of this book. How did you balance all those voices as the designer, making decisions about you know what goes where and how to marry all the voices together into this unity of a book? How did you make those decisions?
0: You know, I think about design i I have gotten clearer about my role as a graphic designer. You know, I used to think of what I, Do as I and I teach graphic design also, so I, I articulate this to students when I teach. I think of graphic designers as being one of the more important roles in our society because graphic designers merge words and images, and we're everywhere, and people see our work every day, but we're terrible marketers of how important. The process actually is you know we are the stewards of information. We mm-hmm. put together the things that people read and see on a daily basis. And I thought of this project I thought of my role as a conductor of a band. there were the the wind chimes and the pianist and the the drummer and the and it was my job to say a little more here, a little less here. Um, you know, a couple more claps, the harmonies a little bit off. And <laughs> it, uh, that basically was my role at various times was to step back and let people do what they do, but then mm-hmm. rein it in when it went too far over in a direction or push further so that the person involved, whether it was the photographer, whether it was, the you know what all of the the contributions the the dozens of contributions in the book that they all felt that they were in sync with each other and that that was bryant's role also he was he was really mm-hmm. paying attention to to just what the individual chapters were saying but what the whole thing um and and so it it really became you know the band metaphor was was really appropriate.
2: Right. Yeah. What were the constraints, intentions or values that were guiding your decisions? You know, if you had to say to someone like, "Oh, we're not going to go in that direction because XYZ." What were your boundaries around where you were going to go or what were your guideposts?
0: You know, when you're talking about a printed thing, mm-hmm. the most important part of the process is time. And and deadlines. That if you haven't done it before, it might feel a little bit amorphous. But my job, like, you know, I was involved with this book from the initial conversations to the mm-hmm. point that it went to the printer. So right. I was a part of every decision having to do with anything visual about the book. I was I was the person, aside mm-hmm. from Brian, who was making those decisions. And so it really became... You know, the consideration of time, COVID was the other twin. (laughs) That was the other thing that just, it just loomed over everything. You know, we Mm -hmm. shot this book at the height, January and February, 2021. And it was right in the midst of a surge, but we had been planning for it for a good four months Mm -hmm. And so it was one of the best experiences I've ever had directing a shoot and we shot it over two weeks. We were just really intentional and considerate and smart. It was my job to kind of rein in what we could or couldn't do because Mm -hmm. we were shooting during COVID. We decided to make it studio rather than shooting it in natural settings. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: so You know, we just made a a lot of really thoughtful decisions, but the time that we had is is the hugest factor of any print thing, because you basically are working backwards from the print date. And so everything has to slot in, you know, from the conceptual stage to the design stage to the reading and the galleys and the revisions. And then you're doing the cover and then, and it it all is just like this continuity of of conversations, but then you have deadlines that, you know, you have to meet because it affects the next stage of the process.
2: Yeah. As you're kind of describing the different stages of the process, you said, like, you know, and then you have the design stage. It sounds like in this project, because it's, I mean, it's just unique the way you all went about it, but where does the design stage begin for you typically? And then in this project specifically,
0: I I work a particular way that I've developed over time, which is that I sketch out everything that I do. And so early in the design process, and for me, the design process starts at the beginning, even though I'm not physically on my computer designing it, like my Mm -hmm. brain thinking through solutions is the design process. And so, you know, the, the cover for Black Food, I sketched out, even though I designed that cover a year later, I sketched out what became the cover after I had my very first conversation with Bryant. Because he articulated very clearly what this book was going to be. And then we ended up going off in a whole, a whole lot of different directions for the cover. But then mm-hmm. at the last minute, we ended up coming back to this original idea. And it was Maverick to do an all-type cover. It was Maverick to put Brian's name on the, on the cover. And that was, that was my idea because I mm-hmm. felt philosophically that his name should be on the cover, that yeah. it was his manifesto, it was his idea. And, and I also knew that I'd never, I had never seen a book like that. I had never seen a book be so declarative about the person who was making the thing being alongside the title of the book. And so I knew it was mm-hmm. distinct. But to me, it was the only thing to do, you know? <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, I'm always sketching out my ideas. And even if it's something that is not used... Along the way, you know, I'll, even in our meetings, I'd sketch out an idea and hold it up to everyone so everyone <laughs> knew what I was thinking. And so that people would be like, oh, okay, no, I, I understand that. Um, and that's typically what I do. So even though the book itself didn't start being designed for several months, the layout of the book was designed before the shoot, uh, which does not usually happen with cookbooks. Books are designed yeah. after they're shot. And it was one of those things where I was like, this does not make any sense to me, the way you guys do this. So we're going to do it my way, <laughs> just so the whole team, the whole photography team knows the context of what the images that they're making, which is going to mu- allow everyone to feel more settled. And everyone's going to produce better work as a result of that, of knowing the container that these images are going to be living in. And it worked. It yeah. completely worked everyone got super excited everyone knew kind of like oh this is going to be living here this is something that we we can shoot and we shot intentionally there were some mm-hmm. images that we shot um, to fall over two pages there were some images that we shot deliberately vertically that there was intention in what we were shooting and most cookbooks you just shoot stuff and then you design around that and that process has never, never made sense to me. And it, and books, publishers do it this way all the time. And it's such a bad idea. It is such a bad idea.
2: (laughs) What to you makes it such a bad idea?
0: Because you're working backwards. It forces, it forces the entire team to work counterintuitively. And everyone in publishing just works this way. Um, that you basically have to take something that is made with no context and then define a new context around it. So you can always see basically books where it's clear that the person who designed the cover did not design the inside. You can see the engineering and everyone's just fine with it. And I have never been fine with it. And so I'm just like, we're not doing it that way. Yeah. The designer is just given the tools. Often the designer of cookbooks are not the people who art direct the shoots also, which is another scandal. Um, <laughs> it's, it's rarely done that. It's only done that way if people on the inside are designing the books, meaning mm-hmm. designers work for the publishing houses. Like those people direct and design the shoots. But if they're outside designers, the outside designers are rarely involved in the art direction of the book, the art direction Mm -hmm. of the images, they're just given these assets and asked to make something that feels organic and human and fantastic. Um, And so you can always see when there's a disconnect and and you can see the reactionary, you can see the responsiveness.
2: Has this changed the way you'll approach future projects or the types of projects you'll take on?
0: Oh, it it already has, you know, Mm. it, it really, you know, I've been designing printed things for a couple decades. And the thing that never gets old, I never get cynical about it because I think it's a, just a really interesting process. I really love talking about how things are made because most people don't think about uh, how the, everyone reads, everyone reads books, but no one thinks about how they're made. Uh, Mm -hmm. And for me, I love sharing the process because I think of it as endlessly interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Working on Black food gave me a mandate for how I want to work on books moving forward. And I'm -hmm. I'm currently designing a lot of books. And it has really kind of given me a case study of how Mm -hmm. it can be and I'm mostly designing books of black authors right now because I feel like there's not enough representation on the design side of people who look like me. And so Mm -hmm. I'm very much, I take my role really seriously as a uh, moderator and a translator of kind of, you know, book publishing. It's they're not always kind of super honest about timelines and, and budgets and, you know, production schedules And so I know all the language and I know the process inside and out. And so I'm really there as an advocate, frankly, of the authors that I'm working with to make sure that they're getting all the information they need to make decisions that they feel great about.
2: And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Check back next week where we'll hear from literary agents Monica Woods and Rika Alenik, and the author of Will Write for Food, Diane Jacob, about cookbook deals, writing a proposal, and growing a platform. As always, you can find bonus content from our episodes on Salt and Spine. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors, and we hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, the best way to support our work is to subscribe to our Patreon page and join our community at patreon.com/saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Clea Worster, and our host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded in San Francisco's Mission District at The Civic Kitchen. The Civic Kitchen offers virtual and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at thecivickitchensf.com. Thank you, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week to talk cookbooks.